You're listening to the Magical Coach Podcast. I am Elizabeth Betty Ash Douglas. Savoy, the home of sweet romance. Savoy, it brings you out. I just loved school from top to bottom. I loved every subject. It was always my object to have an A at the end of the six weeks in every one of them. I loved to read and I loved to make things and I loved to learn. And my dad was not one of those old-fashioned dads that thought your first child had to be a son in order to turn him into something. And so despite the fact that I was a girl, he was willing to teach me anything. And so he taught me how to do all kinds of things that girls in those days didn't learn how to do. So that by the time I was 10, I had my own little printing press and I could write a story and set up the type. I've discovered you can't go through life being afraid of what might go wrong. You have to look for the opportunity to make some things go right. That's something I learned from my parents. Here in Beaver County, there was kind of a quiet, what was then called the gentleman's agreement approach to racial separation and differentiation. But we always lived in situations where there were coming together of various kinds of people. And my parents always said, don't be afraid of anyone and don't let anybody tell you what you are. You decide what you are going to be. I do agree with that, and that's one of the remarkable things about these little, what they call Rust Belt towns, which have risen and supposedly fallen, you know, with the demise of the steel industry. They were always about far more than the rest of the world characterized them as being. So I have never felt as though I was being unduly held back if I was willing to do what was necessary to step outside of the usual gate. Hello, and welcome to the Magical Coach Podcast, brought to you by the Larry Bruno Foundation, where our mission is to cultivate a culture in our community to develop student athletics and academic achievements by promoting professional coaching and team building and family development. My name is Rick Mancini, and I'm a member of the Larry Bruno Foundation, and it is certainly my privilege to be seated at the table with one of our newest inductees into the Larry Bruno Foundation Circle of Achievement, and that is Miss Elizabeth Betty Ash Douglas, one of the more accomplished people who ever came through the city of Beaver Falls. As indicated, she goes by a few names, and it's my understanding that the appropriate way to address her depends upon the subject matter we're talking about. And since we are talking about several different subjects, I am going to refer to her respectfully as Miss Douglas. Miss Douglas, the current middle school in the Beaver Falls School District is the former high school. And it's my understanding that during your time, that was the high school that you attended. Of course, that's a building that's dear to many of us. But if you could, why don't you tell us perhaps some of your either fondest or maybe even not so pleasant memories during your time at Beaver Falls High School? I just loved school from top to bottom. I loved every subject. 
And it was always my object to have an A at the end of the six weeks in every one of them. I, I loved, bet you accomplished that quite a bit. <laughs> I loved my, my Latin teacher because on the very first day, we spoke nothing but Latin in there. We learned the words for boy and girl and farm and yard and so forth. And so we, we went through Dick and Jane in Latin. <laughs> and uh, I, I loved mathematics. I had Sidney Kane for plain geometry. <laughs> And then I was so amazed when I went to teach at Geneva, and he was retired by then, and he was up there, and he was always the old man out there picking up leaves off the walk. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, he was teaching when I was in school, and I remember he lived right up by Geneva College, correct? Oh, I see. <laughs> so that's probably why you would see him picking up the leaves. You, you thought he was doing a public service, but he was probably just cleaning up his own yard. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Mr. Kane, that's a, that's a name that goes down in infamy in the Beaver Falls School District. So... Uh, I'm aware that um, you were obviously much more intelligent than most of your peers, so you sort of went through your high school years a little bit quicker than others. Why don't you explain that to us? I loved to read, and I loved to make things, and I loved to learn. And my dad was not one of those old-fashioned dads that thought your first child had to be a son in order to turn him into something. And so despite the fact that I was a girl, he was willing to teach me anything that he could. Now, he was an electronics technician. And so he taught me how to do all kinds of things that girls in those days didn't, didn't learn how to do. So that by the time I was 10, I had my own little printing press and I could write a story and set up the type and print it. I, I got scarlet fever and I had to be quarantined. And so that meant I had to spend all that time at home. So that was the time during which I wrote my first novel. Well, that, that being said, then you're probably uh, not overly concerned about the coronavirus that seems to be infiltrating uh, the world nowadays. Is that correct? Well, I've discovered you can't go through life being afraid of what might go wrong. You have to look for the opportunity to make some things go right from there. And, and again, that's something I learned from my parents. Because like here in Beaver County, there was kind of a quiet, what was then called the gentleman's agreement approach to uh, racial separation and differentiation. But we always lived in situations where there were coming together of various kinds of people. And my parents always said, don't be afraid of anyone and don't let anybody tell you what you are. You decide what you are going to be. Don't you think that that's perhaps one of the benefits that we have all had growing up in a community like Beaver Falls. I know uh, in my life, leaving the area and going about my business in different parts of the country, I was surprised to see or to realize that my upbringing prepared me for any situation in any type of society. Do you, do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And that's one of the remarkable things about these little, what they call Rust Belt towns, which has risen and supposedly fallen, you know, with the demise of the, of the steel industry. They were always about far more than the rest of the world characterized them as being. And so I have never felt as though I was being unduly held back if I was willing to do what was necessary to step outside of the usual gate. And, you know, and, and I think uh, because of that, and you, I couldn't describe it any better than you did, uh, but I believe because of that, 
we have become an area, even though perhaps small in number, but yet large in producing individuals who have gone on to have a dramatic impact, not only in our community or in our state, but worldwide. Absolutely. And people who have achieved such notable goals as you have. So it's certainly a privilege to be speaking with someone who in many ways, many ways, uh, set the bar very high for those of us that, that came along in later years. So you go to Beaver Falls High School, uh, and again, I know you, you got through high school quicker than most, so why don't you tell us about that and what you did after high school? Well, my standing joke is I couldn't decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, so I grew old without growing up. And while I was in high school, I did everything that opened up to me. So if they needed somebody to design a set for whatever the music was going to be, I'll design the set for you. I'll design the costume. Prom time, I don't have a date for the prom. I'll decorate the gym, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess, I don't know whether I had attention deficit disorder or what it was, but I liked to do things, and so I did things. And people usually appreciated what I did, so that encouraged me to keep on going so that when I graduated from high school, I had my choice of scholarships to study writing at Antioch, to study music at Oberlin. <laughs> but I got the best offer from, from Carnegie Tech to study painting and design. I got the, and because it was closer than others, and because I got an Andrew Carnegie scholarship, that was a scholarship that they had decided to introduce for for students who ordinarily would not be able to afford to go to Carnegie Tech, but who had shown that they had the ability to do the work that they wanted. So I got one of those Andrew Carnegie scholarships. And by the way, Andy Warhol was the one who got the one in the year before me. So Andy Warhol and I were in college together. Well, you know, as you were saying that, I couldn't help but think, uh, you know, nowadays, athletes, like to boast of the different opportunities and offers they have from colleges, but you just uh, recited offers from perhaps three of the most prestigious colleges in the nation. Uh, <laughs> that, that not only uh, were those offers available, it sounds like they wanted you very badly. And and fortunately for uh, Carnegie Mellon or Carnegie Tech, as you referred to it as, uh, fortunately for them, you chose to go that direction. But one thing before we jump ahead, I, I just want to jump back uh, just quickly. Uh, because athletics in our community has had a, a dramatic influence on a lot of things. And it's certainly influenced our organization uh, because our namesake is Coach Larry Bruno, who was a football coach to many of us and, of course, a mentor to many of us. But being a young lady growing up in Beaver Falls and, and as I understand, growing up uh, perhaps a half a block away from Joe Namath, how did athletics impact you? Oh, I played everything they'd let me. <laughs> I got 13 scars on one knee. I was just I was being a tomboy. All I could do was go out and get hurt. <laughs> and I think you said that, uh, well, I know this for a fact, that uh, Linwood Alford uh, was also in your neighborhood, correct? Oh, yeah. And, you know, Linwood's one of our board members. Right. And I I'm glad that uh, we're able to talk to you. Perhaps one day uh, we can sit down and you can you can tell all of us whether most of what Linwood tells us is true or not, or whether he's making a lot of stories up. All you can up. do is look at the suits he's wearing. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, he he dresses to the nines, as they say. And uh, Lynn, or the nine and, nine and 90, 40, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Okay, so let's move on. So now you're at uh, Carnegie, and mm -hmm. that's something that 
to be quite honest, is probably foreign to most of the people that will be uh, listening to this interview. Why don't you tell us about that a little bit? Well, for one thing, I was the first and the only African-American student admitted to the program. The great American sculptor Elizabeth Catlett had been refused admission there 10 years earlier. Hmm. So I was breaking new ground there. And talking about drama, I became the first African-American to be in the singing and dancing chorus of the Scots and Soda musicals. Well, you know, and and that's an interesting topic, I think, that we could probably spend a lot of time talking about, for lack of a better way of saying it. Discrimination, uh, prejudice, something we've all witnessed uh, and something we all abhor. I mean, it's terrible. Right. And as I said a little, a few moments ago, growing up in Beaver Falls, that never was even a thought in my mind. No. It, it never mattered. I don't care where you were from. As a matter of fact, uh, when you mentioned a lot of the people that, that influenced you as a very youngster, I would have thought that maybe you were actually Italian because of all the people that you mentioned. Uh, but that being said... Um, Certainly, we all understand the the detriment of uh, perhaps being the only African-American in, in that uh, particular institution. What was the benefit of that? The benefit was being able to show other people that something as superficial as the color of your skin is not what determines who you are or what you can do. And... Here I am all these years later. Some of my very best friends are people that I went to college with 60 years ago. Sure. Well, you know, and and often you hear stories from African-Americans. And actually, uh, it's it's not exclusive to just African-Americans. But you hear stories of people who are perhaps of a different uh, genre, different race, different religion uh, than others that they were associated with. And they often say that that they felt maybe a burden that they were carrying that was more than just about them, uh, that they were perhaps a trendsetter. Did you feel that at all? or No, because if, if, I'm, if I'm given an assignment, if I'm working on something, I'm just going to do the best that I can in that and try to figure out what the talents are of my cohorts or colleagues are and try to see how we can all work together to get the thing finished and not worry about who's got the status or the standing. For example, in my senior year, I was elected president of the Mortarboard Society, which is an international honorary society of uh, high-achieving women in the college campus. And I knew I had been elected to be a member of Mortarboard. And then I got the announcement telling me that I had been selected to become the president of the next year's chapter of a mortarboard. Then I found out after I had graduated that the national headquarters had called the Carnegie Tech chapter into question because they had selected a Negro girl. Wow. And, and you know, <laughs> the way you describe that is such a perfect example as to how I think all of us felt coming up through Beaver Falls. And that is, if uh, somebody was worried about race or color, that person wasn't from where I came from. Uh, Maybe there were people on the outside that were concerned about that, uh, but that was never an issue. And I can see that you forged ahead, and as far as you were concerned, there were no barriers. Uh, The only thing that perhaps would ever hold you back would be maybe if you ran out of energy, which you never seemed to do. (laughs) So... uh, 
in, in a lot of ways, even though that may may not have been the motivation, you were a trendsetter and you, you set such a great example for those of us coming after you. Okay, so Carnegie, how many years were you there? Four. Four years. So unlike high school where you, you went through three years in one year, uh, you actually went to four full years at Carnegie, correct? I went through four full years, and then I became a graduate student assistant and helped to teach the courses. <laughs> My goodness. Read, read, read the papers because they were always amazed that despite the fact that I was a painting and design student and secondarily a music student, that I could also also write. And so, so I was hired to, to reread the essays. Most of the examinations, you had to write essays because you had to defend philosophical or aesthetic positions and things, things of that sort. And so I managed to go to grad school by working as a graduate student assistant, reading art history essays. And also I was secretary to the man who was the head of the American Circle of Friends, the Quakers, in their pursuit of justice and equality for all Pennsylvanians. And Dr. Francis Tyson, who was the head of the sociology department at Pitt, hired me to be his assistant to go around to the various meetings of the, of the Society of Friends that were doing things to try to break down the segregation barriers here in Western Pennsylvania. One of the things that was going on at the time that the UN and UNESCO were just getting off the feet and we started having diplomats from all over the world coming here from Asia and Africa and other places, and they were getting to Pittsburgh and being treated not very nicely. You know? So because I was in college with those guys who were the, the GIs get, taking care of the, the getting advantage of the GI Bill of Rights, these were guys that had lived enough life that when we saw some of these things, so... My class, my, my white classmates, led me into the groups that got us to desegregate Oakland in Pittsburgh. You couldn't go to those clubs and you know, those restaurants. And, do, you, do you know that I never ate in the Broadhead Hotel? Wow. You know, I could not eat there or at the Penn Beaver. No. Wow. Not only that, we could get an ice cream cone in, in Isley's, but you better take that ice cream cone out the door and walk on down the street and lick it because you couldn't go back there and sit at those little tables. Yeah, that's that's terrible. And I, I think we take so much for granted nowadays. And we have a long way to go, but we certainly have come a long way because that that type of uh, uh, situation would never have been tolerated during the my days. And, of course, it's because of people like you that uh, we would not have let something like that happen. Now, what do you consider your first official job? My first official job was emptying bedpans at the New Brighton General Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> And, and when when was when was that? <laughs> that, that? That was the the summer before my senior year in high school. Okay, so you were because just... I hadn't been old enough to get a job, but uh, I I did get a job at the New Brighton Hospital. Okay, well then let's jump ahead. Post Carnegie, what was your first official job? Working an assembly line, making breakers down at the Westinghouse Assembly Plant in Bramport. I can still do it, man. I can sit that, sit there at that machine, sit on that little stool, put my other thing, grab that thing out of that. You know, ironically, I can relate to that because my mother worked at Westinghouse Electric for 30-some years, <laughs> and they used to have a 
summer program for college students. And if your parents or probably close relatives worked there, Westinghouse would actually hire you for the summer. So I actually did that, <laughs> what you're referring to. And I agree with the way you described it. Uh, and how long did you work uh, at Westinghouse Electric? Till I had enough money to enroll at Pitt as a grad school. <laughs> so so you, you, you're done with Carnegie. It, it, was it in between Carnegie and Pitt that you worked at Westinghouse? Yes. And uh, then you went on to Pitt. And what, what degrees did you attain, obtain at Pitt? Uh, history of art and architecture and aesthetics. Wow. So that I could teach at the college level. Because I did not want to teach studio art because I feel like that that's something that you have to develop as an individual. But every artist needs to know in what context what he or she is doing lies in terms of historical relationship to various aspects of culture. And I had this underlined for me when, I guess it was about almost, almost 15 years ago now, that the National Geographic Genographic Project uh, contacted me to be one of the persons in their in the genographic project where they're tracing the uh, migrations of humankind over the surface of the earth over the centuries. And so I, I found out, for example, that uh, my DNA structure is belongs to one of the oldest lines still living on this earth from, from the third haplosub-group after the first group left over there in East Africa where they believed the Garden of Eden to be around Lake Victoria area. And so, unlike most African Americans, my African heritage is not from West Africa, but from East Africa, from there around that little area that they're always fighting over right now, you know, the Gulf of Form. I'm actually 5% Afghan, too, so I've been in the news a lot lately. It's, it's just, I never paid attention to these places till I discovered they're part of my DNA makeup, you know. I'm 5% Afghan, 8% Polish, 8% Ukrainian, <laughs> and 8% Norwegian. My goodness. Along with uh, but, but, um, 58% East African and 6% South African. As we talked earlier, based on what you described when you were growing up, you were actually in an area of Beaver Falls that probably could have been a precursor to the United Nations because mm -hmm. of all the different nationalities in the mm -hmm. neighborhood. And when I started teaching, my students were always amazed. How do you know how to pronounce our names? <laughs> it's not a Slovak, Slovenian, <laughs> or Czech name around that I can't pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> So the years progress. Uh, you, you left Pitt. You started teaching. Uh, tell us that segment of your life. What what was going on? My first real encounter with how social mores affect the culture of a people at large. I'm unable to get a, a job teaching around here. They weren't re ready for black teachers in the schools here yet. So someone said, "Why don't you apply to the historically black colleges?" And so I did send out letters to them, and I got my first appeal from Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I went down there in the summer of 1952. And when I got there, there was a big celebration going on. What's going on? What's, spe what's special in June? What's they had just received for the first time in history the right for blacks to vote. Wow. In Scotlandville, which was supposedly a suburb of Baton Rouge, the, the residents of Scotlandville, who were all black, had never been allowed to vote because they would go. They would pull the. You've read about them in the textbook. They say, 
uh, recite the first clause of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, you know. And if you can't do it, you can't get it certified to vote. Now, was that um, was that unique uh, to Louisiana? Because no, you know, no. for, for many years, Louisiana was looked at as almost its own country, well, own it, territory. Well, in some ways, it was tougher there because because of that very thing, because it wasn't. I'll put it this way. In one of my classes at Southern, I had this little blonde, blue-eyed girl with this long, wavy hair. Her name I'll never forget. What a name. It sounds like something out of a movie. Lacey May Boudini. You look at Lacey May Boudini, and you would think that Lacey May Boudini was a nice little French girl. No, because in Louisiana, a man could have two families. He'd have a black family on one side of town and a white family on the other. So down there, you, you're labeled all different kinds of things, you know, mulatto, quadroon, octoroon. And, and how long were you in Louisiana? I was, just, I was just there that, that one summer, and then I got a, I had, I had a series of short-term teaching jobs filling in for people who were on sabbatical. And where did you do that? I was in Little Rock, Arkansas for a few years. I was in Memphis, Tennessee for a couple of years. Then I spent several years in Texas College in Tyler, Texas. Uh, you know, let me ask you this. Joe Namath, obviously the most famous person to ever come out of Beaver Falls, mm-hmm. was the subject of an HBO documentary that we were a big part of that was uh, produced many years ago. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that stands out amongst others in that documentary was him explaining how it affected him and how he really could not understand the issue that developed when the young lady was trying to get into the University of Alabama mm-hmm. and the then Governor George Wallace stood on the steps and would not let her mm-hmm. in and uh, the National Guard had to be sent down mm-hmm. to address that situation. Do you remember when that happened? Oh, yes. And what, what, was your, what were your thoughts about that? I was appalled and found it incredible that such a thing could be happening in the United States. But since that time, especially after I had worked for Dr. Tyson for a while and he was so intent upon equality of rights being extended to all Americans, that I began to study up on it more deeply and got directly involved in some of those things. So, but I could understand why Joe, <laughs> when Joe first came home from Alabama, he said the white guy down there called him Nigger Joe. Yeah. Because he knew how to get along with the black the, the the black guys were new to the rest of the team down there. But for Joe, been playing football with black guys all his life. Right. He knew they weren't any different than any other football player. Exactly right. And uh, to me, that is one of the, the best qualities that we all learned growing up in the area that we did. Uh, because that type of racial prejudice was completely foreign to me also. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really comprehended it to this day. I don't understand that, but uh, it is what it is. So we just we just move on. Uh, now let's let's get into the uh, perhaps early seventies. Do you remember where you were in the early seventies? Oh yes, trying to make a living on a school teacher salary. And where was with that? With three children in Rochester, Pennsylvania. You say with three children? Three. And how old are they? Uh, they're all in their fifties now. You were teaching. I was teaching at Geneva. And my husband was principal at Rochester High School. Wow. And how long did he serve in that role? Almost 30 years. He was the first black teacher in Rochester and went on to become the first black principal. Wow. In central Beaver County, actually. That's amazing. And where where was he from? Fort Worth, Texas. And where did you meet him? 
at Texas College when I was teaching there, and he was a star on the football team. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, how did you convince him to come to Western Pennsylvania? Well, he was he became one of the first black students to graduate from North Texas State University with his master's degree in general science and phys ed. Now, just to, let me interrupt you for one second, because I, I went to the University of Louisville, and we played against North Texas State. And the year before I went there, Mean Joe Green played mm-hmm. at North Texas State University. Mm-hmm. That's a name that's... Uh, mm-hmm. That we're all very fond of. But I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. So, but, but, but anyway, Doug had been, you know, champion in high school, black high school football player in, in Fort Worth when he graduated from high school. And he played football in the, in the Army. As a matter of fact, he was even considered for an assistant coaching position with Paul Brown at, with the Cleveland Brown. Wow. But at any rate, when he was offered that job in Rochester, all the black people around here said, we ain't never had no black teacher around here. You better not refuse that job. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, he had to take that job. He took that job. It began in 1962. Hmm. And he taught until he retired in 1997. So, and during that time, you were teaching at Geneva? I started teaching at Geneva in 1966. Where did your family live during this time? My married family and my family I grew up no, in. No, you're married. You're, you and your husband and your children. We lived, well, for one thing, we became the first black family to ever live in a rented house in Dawson Ridge in Brighton Township. Bovard Anderson swallowed the nut and had the courage to rent to this young black family wow. in 1962 and caused quite a little bit of stir around here with them, them black folks living up there on Neville Road in Brighton Town. And, and the thing is, you probably made, between you and your husband, probably made more money than anybody else in the neighborhood. I have no idea. Well, that would be my guess. Okay, so then uh, your husband passed away? In 1997, yeah. 1997. Con- congestive heart failure. Wow. Had he been retired at that time? No, he took retirement in order to be, one day found out that he was our terminal. Oh, I see. That's when I retired, too, so I could be with him for his last days. Oh, my, my. Again, another character trait from our area, because what you're saying is something that uh, a lot of spouses have done over the years, and that is they've put their careers either on the shelf or on hold to take care of their spouse. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I've seen that many times. And again, I think that's a quality that's ingrained in, in most of us. Okay, so your husband passes away in the late 90s. Then what's the next stage of your life? Well, by that time, I'm, I'm retired and I have, I've continued to do, you know, my artwork and my speaking. And it's like, I'll be up at Geneva next week doing a guest lecture. They have me back every semester to do a couple of guest lectures here and there. And uh, as I say, Feb- between February and March, it's a work assisted to death month. February, I got to do all kinds of black history programs. <laughs> then March is Women's History Month, so I got another. And then April is Jazz History Month. <laughs> so I'll be busy for the rest of this season. <laughs> and certainly uh, in the future, uh, for those that are fortunate enough to attend our banquet, our annual banquet, they will be able to see you in person and and hear from you as you speak to the audience, uh, looking again at your resume, curriculum vitae, whatever you want to refer to it as. Uh, I see you were on the board of directors of the Beaver Valley Musicians Union, the Lincoln Park Performing Arts Charter School, 
the Guild Council, the Pittsburgh Center of Arts, the Midland Arts Council, <laughs> scholarship chair of the Rochester Chamber of Commerce, and perhaps maybe, uh, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but it was certainly up high on that list, was the Merrick Art Gallery Associates. Mm -hmm. And I know you had a lot to do uh, with establishing art galleries. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, actually, the credit for that, I have to go back to the late Mrs. Eva May Merrick, who was married to Robert C. Merrick, who was the trustee of the Merrick Art Gallery. I don't know how familiar you are with the history of the Merrick Art Gallery, but Dempster Merrick was a 19th century industrialist who founded a standard horse nail company over there in New Brighton. And New Brighton, contrary to our general belief, was quite a hot town in the middle of the 19th century. The Townsend family, one of the founding families there, of course, were among the most prominent Quaker abolitionists in the eastern part of the United States. So much of what happened in terms of the preparation of ground for amicable racial relationships in this immediate area was due to the heavy influence of the Quakers, of the Society of Friends, and of the Reformed Presbyterians here who had found. Do you know that one of the first college graduates from a white school happened in 1867 when Geneva College graduated seven African former <laughs> slave students? Wow. You know, it's amazing as you speak and you mention all of these names from your past and you're referring to the individuals. Those are names of institutions that we all knew growing up when you talk about the Moultrips and the Townsends and, and the various uh, other names you mentioned. It's just it's amazing how much how much you in yourself are history. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's really just a privilege for us to be able to not only talk to you, but to even be associated with you. It's, it's just a, a tremendous privilege. Okay, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? What am I doing now? Well, today I should be filling out my application form for put some work in the upcoming Art of the State exhibition in Harrisburg. I've had work in it in the past few years, and I got up this morning thinking this is the deadline day. I better get in mind what I'm going to send in <laughs> So I don't know, but I will be doing a concert at the Sweetwater Art Center in the Clearview Federal Credit Union Sweet Jazz Series, calling this show Abracadabra, The Magic of Jazz with Betty Douglas and Rex Trim and company. And I'll be doing songs that talk about how love has its own magic about it and singing songs that emphasize that, like that old black magic and I Remember April and... It's magic and, you know, My moonlight in Vermont. And, and, and I think something else that's, that's astounding, maybe this would be offensive to some. I'm sure it will not offend you at all. Uh, but considering that you said you were born in the late 1930s and uh, being a Beaver Falls grad and I took some math courses, I can figure out that that means that this year you will turn 90. Is that correct? At the end of this year, yeah, because my birthday's in December, yeah. Yes. So you will be 90 years young uh, in December of this year. Of December of 2020, yes. And to be quite honest, and I'm not just saying this, <laughs> if I did not know that, I would have never guessed that because uh, you look much younger than that. But after speaking with you and learning from you and seeing how much wisdom you have, uh, it's obvious that you've, you've been around a while and that you've covered a lot of territory. Okay, to uh, wrap up brief. the... 
to wrap up our discussion here, <laughs> Good is grief. there anything that you want to say that we didn't talk about? Any any subject matter that you want to address? Oh, my. Well, you know, I, I didn't ask you this because this was all, always a big part of our lives growing up. Uh, and and it, maybe it's something you don't want to discuss, but I'll leave that up to you. But uh, what church did you attend? Oh, boy. I come from a holy family. <laughs> no, I'll put it this way. In 1886, my maternal great-grandfather had seven children and a wife, and he wrapped them all up. They were from Halifax County, North Carolina. He had been, oh, let me put it this way. In 1890, the United States outlawed the slave trade. And after the end of the slave trade, the only way that those planters who needed slaves could get new slaves was by having the slave women that they had bear more children or to father some children with their slave women to make more slaves. My maternal great-great-grandfather was such a child. He was the son of the plantation owner through one of the slaves. But when he died, he gave his son his freedom. You've read about blacks having slaves. That's how they got him. Because when he, he left, he gave his son his freedom, and he gave him all his family his freedom so that he gave his mothers and sisters and brothers and so forth. And so that family, they had been house slaves, which was what usually happened with those mixed-blood children. They would be made house slaves. So they would have clothes and shoes and know the mores of the society at large. So that when, after the Civil War was fought, my great-great-grandfather had property and land, but now blacks had to, and they're, they're talking right now about South Carolina and all the black votes they got down there. Because once the Civil War was over, the black population exceeded the white population. <laughs> and so that meant that every white man had the vote that represented him and three-fifths of each of the slaves that he owned, you see. And so that's how the South got its in industrial advantage in the years following the Civil War. So these children then that had slave master fathers, when jobs came, they could get the jobs first. So that my great-great-grandfather with his seven children could pack up his family and be well enough off with the land holdings he kept down there. And he came up here to Duquesne, Pennsylvania, to Western Pennsylvania. He had been trained to be a pastor, and he established Macedonia Baptist Church in Duquesne, PA. Right here in Beaver Falls, 24th Street Baptist Church, 2nd Baptist Church, the corner of uh, 24th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue. My great uncle, Green Edward Sally, built that church in the 1920s. My mother grew up in that house because my mother was orphaned when she was a nine-year-old girl. And her aunt, her father's sister, was Mrs. Green Edward Sally. Sally's already had 11 children. So when they said, Irma doesn't have any place to go, Grandma Mary says, I already got 11, one more won't make any difference. So Irma went to live with the Sallys, and she grew up there, and she went to Second Baptist Beaver Falls. And then she started go going. She was taking piano lessons from Edith Allen, who had a music class down here in Beaver Falls. But at any rate, she wound up going to Second Baptist Church in Rochester, and where she married my, my father. The fact that coming from a family of preachers and teachers meant that that's what we were all ex expected to develop our mental and expressive 
facilities as much as, much as possible. And, and I can relate to that because my grandfather was my preacher for 30-some years. So the same thing. And, you know, and yeah. that's... Uh, Grandpa would come in and hear me whistling and say, whistling woman and a crowing hand don't come to no good end. <laughs> well, I know I'm being repetitive here, but it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be able to speak with you, to hear from you, and to learn from you. Uh, and you have convinced me that I uh, no longer need to even consider ordering updated encyclopedias. All I'd have to do is give you a phone call. and You, <laughs> you could answer any historical question I might have. Uh, and that doesn't just apply to our local area, but uh, worldwide. I do love history, and I, and I love seeing the parallel relationships that spring up from time to time. And everybody seems to think, oh, this is new. No, I can't remember when this happened way back where. Well, and I, I can say without hesitation that anyone who misses the opportunity to hear from you in person, as we will have that opportunity during our banquet, is going to miss out on something very special. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your example. And uh, I look forward to, to speaking with you more as time goes on. So God bless you. Thank you. Well, Judge, you mentioned your family helping you. Were there any coaches or teachers that influenced you or inspired you to become the leader that, that you later became? The first who comes to mind was my gym teacher in seventh grade, Abby Walton. One day at the end of gym class, he called me and said, I, I want to talk to you after class. So after the other students left he sat next to me in the bleachers, and he said, look, I want you to understand that you have athletic ability much better than most of your classmates. I want you to think of quit hollering at them and quit criticizing them because they don't play as well as you do. And what I want you to think about is this. Be a leader. Those words, be a leader, somehow became embedded in my makeup. And until this day, those words seem to ring in my ears and throughout my system, be a leader, be a leader, be a leader. And I don't know that Mr. Walton knew at that time, nor even later in life, the impact those words he said to me would have. And they've shaped in part, in a great part, my attitude toward life in general.